This is not psychotherapy. Dr. Wills does not have a provider-patient relationship with this guest. These are just two people talking about emotions. Welcome to Give a Actually with your host, Dr. Alex Wills. Dr. Alex Wills with Give a Fuck Actually. Today we're here with Skip, our esteemed counselor at Permanental Health. Hey, Skip, thanks for being on. Yeah, thanks a lot, Dr. Wills. I really appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, so do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and your background by way of introduction? Yeah, as you mentioned, I'm Skip Goddard. I'm a LCPC practicing in Boise with Permanental Health. I know I've been working in this industry, mental health in general, for probably the past 20 years. I graduated in 2003 with a bachelor's of science from Boise State University. After that, I worked in community mental health for a few years and really decided that this is what I wanted to do. The experience kind of led me to pursuing a master's master's of arts in transpersonal counseling psychology. I went to Naropa University in Boulder, Colorado for three years. That was the primary focus. And while I was there, I was fortunate enough to be able to start working as an intern, graduate intern with the Boulder Vet Center. And that was a really, really amazing experience. There, I was working with primarily combat trauma. That was the main thing, but you know, it was essentially working with the life experiences of all the soldiers from decades past. I was running groups. Initially, it was a group for combat veterans, and primarily it was all Vietnam veterans. And then over the course of the, the year and a half I was with them, it started shifting to more GWAT, which would be the global war on terrorism. And that's how they refer to it. And after graduate school, my experience with the internship, I returned to Boise. My father had contracted cancer and he was very ill at the time. And um, <clears throat> I started working here again, working towards licensure. And I became an LPC in 2010. And I started working with the same community mental health organization that I had worked with previous to attaining my master's degree. And once I was licensed, I started working as a clinician alongside other therapists and psychiatrists. And I stayed with that agency for a number of years, probably about eight years. In 2017, I earned my LCPC, which is like the second tier LPC. And during the span of that time, I had also Gained some experience in working in substance use disorders, running some substance use groups. I also worked with the, the Boise Ketamine Clinic early on when the Osmond Ketamine was starting to be used as a psychiatric option. Um, that was probably in early, I don't know, around 2014, I would say. I'd also worked for about a year as a spiritual care provider with hospice. And that's another level of like, I don't know, career that has really contributed to, I don't know, perspective that I hold now. And I think it was with that and the, accumul the accumulative effect of all these opportunities that I had that 
kind of allowed me to gain employment as the clinical director of the the crisis center upon its opening in Caldwell, so western the western side of the valley. I stayed there through the pandemic and into 2021. And once again, crossed paths with Dr. Wills and started working as a clinician here with Permanent Men's Health. Awesome. And Skip is our psychedelic assisted psychotherapist with Permanent Mental Health. We are able to only use ketamine currently. Could you tell us a little bit about psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy, your your training in it, and what you're doing with patients currently? Yeah, absolutely. I know it's the most. The training has been essentially not formal because it's, in in some ways, it's kind of almost a grandfathering into the industry as it has become now. Working with, I don't know. There's some intoxicating effects associated to a lot of different psychiatric medications, as well as like working with persistent and severe mental health conditions, crisis of all types. My real background comes from, you know, studying transpersonal psychotherapy and part like the whole transpersonal perspective is to incorporate the various levels of consciousness, you know, subconscious, non-ordinary states of consciousness consciousness or NOSC as they would clinically describe it. I know what in transpersonal psychotherapy, one of the founders or essentially one of the, the, the most foremost contributors to the school of thought would be like Stan Groff and his history and role in using LSD as a provider in the old Czech Republic um, for a number of years. And then he, uh, he moved, I know, to, I believe, the United States in the 70s, around the time this, the war on drugs had occurred, had occurred and really kind of clamped down on things. And so his, uh, his focus was very limited. And that's when he developed um, like holotropic breathwork as a form, as a way to enter into a non-ordinary state of consciousness without uh, any use of any substances or anything. I've also worked a lot in like studying Carl Jung and his use of like dreams, dream work. That's another level of working with non-ordinary states of consciousness. Uh, Meditation is a huge element, which, you know, working with meditation and dreams are both in some way working with non-ordinary states as well as hypnotherapy, which I'm certified I'm certified clinically based or trauma, trauma based hypnotherapist as well. And all of these, uh, and you know, it's psychedelic psychotherapy is not a new thing. And it's been around for thousands of years, ever since humans have been using entheogenic medicines for healing purposes. And, um, now we have this whole, I mean, you know, the, the, the medicine of psych, psych, psychiatry as, as an effective medicine. And that's kind of a, I think a continuation of the practice. Um, and now it's almost come full circle. Um, you know, I don't know if you've mentioned already, but with like psilocybin, which is a naturally occurring substance and the MDMA, which is another highly effective psychiatric option 
And at this point, it's almost would be considered not ethical to keep these things from the public just because of the potential for their healing power. And I know that... So going back, I know that, uh, you know, found, found foundations in transpersonal psychotherapy, working with the psychiatry in general, severe and persistent mental health conditions, meditation, use of meditation in my clinical work, almost as a foundational practice, uh, using meditation in my own practice, the power of like presence and being, you know, moment-centered awareness, all these elements kind of contribute to a perspective that's really driven my career. In the crisis center, uh, working like acute uh, a crisis and sometimes a acute detox. Some of the states of mind that can be, I don't know, governed through, you know, stimulant psychosis, um, alcohol withdrawals, opiate withdrawals, it's fascinating how consciousness itself, I mean, it's the root of really everything. And to be able to work with it at that level, I mean, in the moment with individuals is a very, 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 I'm extremely grateful for the opportunity to work so closely with people. Yeah, Skip's such a great asset to the team. And having this background with transpersonal counseling, psychology, as well as the non-ordinary states of consciousness, psychedelic assisted psychotherapy. If anyone is interested in this stuff more, uh, reach out to us at radicalemotionalacceptance.com. You could reach out and we could connect you with Skip. Uh, if you have questions, we could maybe do some more episodes because th these topics are fascinating and I could spend all day talking about it as we often do. So it's kind of where it's at. And, uh, yeah. And I, I mentioned that, you know, it's, you know, civilizations, as long as humans have been humans, they've been using some sacred, sacred plants, sacred, I mean, essentially entheogens in general as a way to kind of facilitate non-ordinary states and connecting them to, you know, higher levels of the self, higher levels of consciousness. And, and, and what happens there is that they, they gain perspective outside of like their, uh, ego scaffolding, which is the ego scaffolding is where they've built over the course of a lifetime. And essentially it's, uh, sometimes can become its own prison. Yeah. I love this stuff. You know, before we segue into talking about emotions and sort of following that where it goes, which is kind of the concept of this show, I thought I'd share briefly. I used to hate it when I would have early morning awakenings. You know, when you wake up at 5 a.m. and you want another couple hours of sleep, but you're just kind of half asleep, you're, you're not able to go back to sleep. And my normal mode of thinking was, fuck, like now this sucks and I'm going to just be not so lively today because I woke up too early. Now that's actually become my favorite time of the day. If I do wake up early, I find that I'm in this sort of altered state of consciousness, semi-asleep, half awake. And if I close my eyes, I go into this kind of daydream state where I'll be thinking about whatever issues or problems are going on or just random stuff. And my thoughts will have kind of this fantasy characteristic to them. 
And I'll be thinking of all kinds of magical, crazy ways to address these issues. And I find it's a invaluable time because I can't do that when I'm wide awake, when my ego is fully intact, when I'm in my normal operating state of mind. And so the information, even though sometimes I don't remember everything, the concepts, I find them to be priceless. And, and sometimes I'll come up with incredibly creative, crazy solutions to stuff that I don't think I would have otherwise. So I just love, you know, any kind of mildly altered state and and just having that curiosity about the value of what could be going on, you know, very similar to dream work. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I know like theorists in the past, uh, you know, even like Carl Jung, um, really, 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 I mean, he has this statement, it's about you know, the treasure for which you fear to enter most, therein lies your, lies your treasure. And I think that goes back to part of the power of like your work. And I think, you know, that's, that's one thing that, you know, I want to extend my appreciation for that because I know in working so closely with the medical model in general, I've kind of had a, sometimes almost like a, I don't know, a perspective on it that I can see where Although the best efforts in trying to help people, sometimes it can go awry. Whereas sometimes it can keep people trapped in a certain state of being, which can kind of help them feel safe or better. But at the same time, it kind of limits their capacity to enter into like real connected and authentic catharsis. And mm -hmm. I feel like uh, your perspective is really important for the general soul of the medical community to kind of really start to work towards, to really mm -hmm. kind of approach approach mental health conditions and this kind of existential dilemma that we're having, this experience of challenge and pain, um, which is kind of an offshoot of being a sentient being in this world that's inherently harsh. It's an important place to be because our goal is for healing and for helping and healing and ending or at least mitigating suffering to the point where, I mean, there's always going to be pain. That's, that's part of reality. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, it's important to use pain in a way that can really, I think, serve as foundation for catharsis, catharsis and transformation growth. I think that's a huge part of it. Yeah. Well, if anybody out there is interested, you can go to permamentalhealth.com or .net, radicalemotionalacceptance.com. We can continue to talk more about it. Or if you wanted some personal attention, just reach out and we'd be happy to help you. Really brave new world of helping people with newer, well, ancient and newer treatment modalities kind of bringing together. But let's let's pivot into the concept of the show today, which is a bit of an experiment. We are following emotions and seeing where they might lead us, especially those so-called negative, unpleasant, scary, icky emotions that we don't want offhand. But we want to see if there's some real value to them. So I was wondering, Skip, did you have anything coming up for you? Any emotions lately? What's sort of on your heart, on your mind today as we connect? Yeah, I know this experience is a little new working with you on your program. And it was initially a little bit 
tricky to get technology kind of flowing in the same way that we intend, you know, over time, sticking with that and uh, kind of working through it ultimately kind of pans out. And uh, I think, and, you know, looking back, you know, over the course of like the weekend and whatnot, there's, there's like that, you know, constant voice in the back of my head. All right, we got to, you know, get, get down to this. There's uh, we got a lot of work to do. Um, get all the ducks in the row and then eventually I don't know here we are yeah but, but it, I mean I think in general any level of difficulty emotion not any level I know sometimes emotion can be so overwhelming that all you can do is cope all you can do is survive and at that point um, survival is, is, is the whole key but uh it's it's a tricky kind of balance. I mean, just because you survived one way and learn to cope one way doesn't mean that you always have to do so. Because oftentimes mm -hmm. those ways of coping are the most maybe initially effective, but over long term they don't really support growth and healing in that regards. Yeah. So so what emotions can you name that are coming up for you now? Just just in the moment about today or you know, stuff maybe going on, you know, in your own life or otherwise. Yeah, it's, um, yeah, middle-aged guy in Boise. There's some level of, as you know, excitement. I love talking about this stuff. I love talking about consciousness and being in a place where I can work with people at this level is really inspiring for me. And so I get very, very excited. I know there is some level of, you know, physical pain. I've got some sun exposure on, uh, you know, my kneecaps. I can feel those are kind of like uh, fiery right now. It's, um, I feel like this sense of, you know, I have a drive, a drive to, uh, continue to work and push through each day. And as you mentioned, some level of exhaustion that kind of comes with that. And that's a, I guess maybe exhaustion is one that's really tricky because, because, you know, physical exhaustion also becomes some level of like emotional exhaustion. And uh, sometimes the world gets uh, really heavy and, um, it's a, it's a good indicator that that's a good time to calibrate. For sure. <clears throat> yeah, so right now there's kind of a mix of things, excitement, drive, exhaustion. What it, is there any kind of way to orient us a little bit? Like, is there any maybe more specific kind of example, something that we can kind of sink our teeth into a little bit going on and that might be associated with some of these difficult emotions for you? Yeah, let me let me think for a second. You know, there is You know, at some level there is that experience of like the the self and I know that it's really easy to 
begin to identify with different things and especially fear and fear seems like such like an exquisite human emotion that it can really i don't know my perspective is that you know the ego experiencer or like the i there's so much charge in things like fear or worry so much charge in sadness that it's really easy for the experience of I to kind of connect with these and relate to them so intently that they almost become the experience of I. And um, mm-hmm. it's a, they're, it's, they're very real poignant experiences. And it's sometimes it's as if like fear or worry kind of defines an experience. Uh, I've, I've had that experience myself where, you know, fear and worry becomes such the routine that, that then my entire way of being is, is basically the practice of fear and worry. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes it's, it's really easy to fear and worry about things that are going to be like worst case scenario. Um, and I think to a certain regards that really inhibits your capacity or capability to effectively engage and work with these like really challenging experience experiences because it really depletes your capacity to be moment centered and present and balanced within the now. And you know, the now is the only time that there is like five minutes ago, whatever I was experiencing. Um, is totally uh, not here now, except for like on the recording. Hold <laughs> for another level of this, but yeah, it's um, mm-hmm. you know, perpetually right now. You know, things kind of collapse and things kind of blossom out of right now. Yeah, that's super relatable. You know, the the fear, the anxiety, those are. It can be very intense. You know, every emotion can range in its intensity. And when when they get to be a certain intensity, you almost feel incapacitated to, you know, work with it or to accept it. And it becomes so overwhelming that you have to just sort of it feels like you just have to cope or you just sort of have to try to survive without sharing, you know, any um, uncomfortable personal details that you don't want to. I like talking about this stuff conceptually, but is there like an example, something going on just in general so that people can have kind of an idea of what, you know, a a really specific sort of story or example that we could kind of work with so we can kind of get a little bit away from the conceptual stuff and just kind of interface directly with those emotions and kind of see where that goes? Yeah, I would say I know that like early on, I experienced some significant trauma in my own life, especially like it was when I was around 19, I was involved in a very severe car accident that left me really incapacitated for a long time. And when I say incapacitated, I mean like there was, there was some like neurological paralysis and um, I had to relearn how to walk and talk and swallow and all kinds of different things. And in the midst mm. of that, it's, um, which would be 
in the midst of that, I know I was holding so much fear, so much anxiety that I was to the point where uh, you're speaking to now where it's like all I could do was survive. Mm-hmm. All I could do was mm-hmm. survive. All I could do is try to keep breathing one more breath at a time. One more. One more. And so it's the practice of engaging in this fear, of trying to work with fear in spite of like the enormity of the odds at hand um, has been, it's, it's been kind of key. And I know for me, like in my own experience, I know the previous to this, I, you know, school was kind of came natural to me. I didn't have to really try. In fact, I know like through the first part of my college career, I slept probably through most of every day those classes I didn't and I still passed but I didn't pass with like a very great grades but afterwards and then kind of approaching that experience in like having to recover from essentially what would be trauma because I know you know especially with like you know give a fuck actually and the, the idea of learning how to give a fuck about things because one of the ways to cope sometimes is to just really withdraw and, you know, and not care, even if that convincing yourself isn't itself a way to defend yourself from yourself, you know, it's to not care, it's completely withdraw. And I see that happen a lot with people that have had some sort of trauma, not just the trauma or the fear of the experience itself, but in any level emotion that can fall within the context of emotion, whether it be joy or excitement or even, you know, feeling good. Sometimes people can relate to them in a way where good feelings are threatening because they're still feelings, even though they're not fear, they're still a feeling that's on the spectrum of a, you know, potential experience. Um, and that's where you see like a lot of people just flattening out completely yeah. and withdrawing, withdrawing from this existential experience that is the meaning of things. And it's important to, to give a fuck about things because that's that's really the, I don't know, I think that's the meaning of things is to find a way to give a fuck. And I know that you kind of map that out in the book, but sometimes it can become such a foundational way to respond and to exist that it becomes the practice of not caring and not even really wanting to engage in your experience. And I see, I think that's something that comes along with people that have been suffering with depression or anxiety for so long that it gets to the point where they, they practice it. They've gone over that ground so often that just becomes like the way it is. And it definitely doesn't have to be. And I think a part of that is, you know, an interesting point is I'm reading this um, book on the, uh, the history of like, um, the use of San Pedro and the Peruvian mountains and how uh, even then their kind of like rationale for the, the, the magic or the benefits of the San Pedro cactus is in that kind of identifying that, you know, we live in this physical reality and this experience of the ego and so the whole time we've been here, we've been in this experience of the ego. And part of the challenge is that the ego is 
is informed by fear. It's informed by these challenges and these rigorous, uh, you know, events that sometimes are very overwhelming. And so he put it in a way where, I don't know, kind of the use, and I can see this in psychotherapy, I know things kind of boil down, you kind of go over the same, same ground until you get to a point where, all right, well, what we know here is that the most beneficial thing that you can do for yourself is to really focus on love and compassion and really integrate that into your experience and use love and compassion as a way to kind of even address and bump up against your own experience of fear or distress. And so it's his identifying that, you know, as you're the normal way of relating to the world through this, you know, um, Newtonian physical plane is one where it's constant challenge, constant striving to work against, you know, the odds. They're they're always here. And it's, you know, kind of like a little acorn. I mean, an acorn's an acorn, but it doesn't become a huge oak tree until it's practiced intending to strive to, you know, to the sun. And over time, it becomes a big oak tree. But it's in that time, it's, you know, it has to really strive against gravity and growth. The intention has to be there. And oftentimes the intention is the most, I think, sabotaged by the experience of fear itself. Yeah. Is there something that you can give as an example that you're afraid of lately? Something that's we could talk about specifically. Again, I think the concepts are really, you know, key and and it's interesting to talk about, but kind of where the rubber meets the road is how it actually plays out in life. I, I don't know if there's anything that comes to mind, an outcome, anything that you're fearing lately. I think we could all, you know, share a multitude of fears that we that we are conscious of or maybe slightly unconscious of because this world is fraught with, uh, you know, threats at every corner yeah and it's easy i think to learn to relate to the world through the lens of threats and as i say that i know that there is that kind of like sometimes that's important to do so to kind of prepare and i i know i also have a 15 year old a 16 year old son now and i know a lot of fear I don't know, maybe that's just where I'm at in phase of life, but a lot of my fear is in, you know, is he going to be okay? Mm-hmm. Is he going to be making choices that are going to be okay? Um, right. That are going to help him stay safe. I mean, and, and you know, the fear is real. I mean, it's the fear of, uh, you know, with a fentanyl outrage or fentanyl outbreak and the, the epidemic that has on uh, society it's a, uh, it's, it's, it's scary. Absolutely. Yeah. And it really, it really is life and death. You know, we, we have these fears for a reason. What, what, well, let's, let's define what do you think the purpose of fear is? Why, why do we humans even have fear? Why is it a necessary, a good thing, or is it just there to torture us because life isn't hard enough already? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's, and that's one thing we agree on. I, I'm sure is that life is, you know, very, very hard already. Uh, but I think the fear is a, 
I mean, ultimately, at some level, I, I see it as being like the opposite of like, like, like love, essentially. But fear is kind of what has to be there. I mean, I think ultimately it becomes, you, you know, you don't have anything to fear except for fear itself. And um, fear, fear is huge. I mean, it's, it drives, it drives our kind of um, intentions to one, be safe. But, but fear in itself is also a spectral thing as well. I think fear can be broken down into anger, angst, uh, even like sadness. It's, I don't know if I really chew on it. Fear itself becomes kind of like this existential kind of offshoot to where we have like these highly organized bodies. We're in this threatening container. And although it's not threatening all the time, it can be threatening. And you can think, and that's the thing with consciousness too, is that it can serve as like the foundation for your reality. Consciousness can also serve as like a continual kind of source of activating fear and activating distress. Fear is a motivator. It's a motivator for, you know, whether it be like securing like surroundings, whether it be addressing health concerns, I guess, you know, fear in my own experience kind of arises out of, you know, health and existing. I know mm-hmm. I got a lot of things to do. I got a lot of people depending on me. And, you know, in order to be that for others, be that for my kids, be that for myself, be that for my employer, be that for my clients. I've got to maintain my own experience of me. And so fear in that regard can be, you know, having to like maintain health concerns, whether it be like skin, uh, you know, the fear of a sunburn. I mentioned this, the sun was out really hard in Boise this weekend. I like burnt some my kneecaps watching a soccer game. <laughs> That's a, uh, you know, there's, there's some level of fear there, which Ultimately, that drives me to kind of change my behaviors in order to kind of meet the demands and alleviate to a certain degree that experience of fear itself, whether it be yeah. using some better sunscreen next time or sunscreen in general, aftercare, getting my skin, my skin checked. There's, I think fear is inherent and very important. Yeah, you know, and, and to orient people to give a fuck speak in the um, five acceptances, you know, step one of radical emotional acceptance is to drop the fuck shield. But before we drop it, we realize that, as we were talking about, in times of great distress, in times of survival and coping mechanisms, we don't want to just drop the fuck shield and realize that we have this shield emotion of anger. We have our defense mechanisms. We have stuff that can help us survive in the moment before we get to step two, which is, you know, to, to name the fuck. And what we're doing right now, we're naming fear. Like that's the, that's the fuck we're talking about. It's a very, powerful, disturbing, distressful. It can be a very intense and overwhelming emotion. 
And we're also kind of skipping to step five or the fifth acceptance, which is finding gratitude for the fuck. So how can we find gratitude for the fear? And you said some things that are key. You know, it's so relatable thinking about your son, safety. You know, there's this world that we're, you know, raising our kids to inherit is fraught with danger. There's fentanyl. There's there's all kinds of things that make it very, very dangerous and unsafe. And so that's so relatable. And I can think of, you know, a few huge fears in my life going on right now with various things and trying to find gratitude for that. I think, you know, you said that fear makes us aware of threats. It's making us aware that, you know, whether it's irrational or rational, there is a threat, whether it's one in a million chance or if it's 50% likely going to happen, the fear is orienting us to that to make us aware so that we can keep safe. And it also motivates us, like you said, because we need that kind of kick in the pants to say, okay, there is a threat. I've taken that step to analyze it and realize that I don't need to do anything. I need to do a little bit. I need to ask for some help. Or I need to move a massive mountain to mitigate this threat. And so that gives me a lot of gratitude because my gut reaction is when I'm starting to have fear and noticing that I'm living in fear, it's often because I'm trying to fix it, suppress it, get rid of it instead of accepting it and instead of trying to find gratitude for how it's trying to help me, which makes it a hundred times worse because you're not tapping into the power of that fear, rather you're trying to somehow ignore it, avoid it, make it go away, numb out with uh, drugs or whatever we might do. So I really like how you put it to, you know, become a very big motivator. And, and that gives me that gratitude that kind of puts me in, in tune with the emotion so that the, the fear is no longer a problem that I have to fix but it's actually there to help me if I can only see how. But that's that's how I conceptualize it. How does that land for you? How do you kind of think about it? Yeah, I think um, that those, uh, that's a really good point. Uh, the fear element. I know that, like, especially in times of trauma, I mean, where it becomes survival, like the fear can be so overwhelming that I do survive and cope. Um, yeah, but I also know that, and when that happens, the fear kind of robs your capacity to be present centered and really kind of operate in a way with intention to where you're kind of setting up the trajectory for the next instance to be in a better place. And if you can do that, that kind of reduces that kind of, uh, potential for how fear is going to govern your own experience. Right. Um, and so I really know that in dealing with fear it's it is about kind of connecting to the center connecting to your balanced center watching what is there watching how that fear is impacting you and kind of finding the flow the flow of the moment is really how to uh that's what i think what happens with fear is what happens is this is like there's a resistance like withdrawing from something and uh, once you do that you're resisting the the moment and your capacity to be here centered in the moment. And that really causes like a disruption or a obstruction to the flow 
of things. And then from that, all kinds of turbulence can come off. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's the, the whole fear component is really a, that that's where it becomes a detriment is where it can kind of inspire a withdrawal or an avoidance. And that's where I think the problems can, can rise. I'm curious, what, what, what do you do when you gave the example of, you know, life or death when you're raising a teenage son and there's some really, you know, big risks out there. And if everybody could take a moment and think of the biggest thing they fear right now, I'm thinking of a couple things. And although the chances of a devastating outcome like death or whatever it might be may, may be kind of low, it's still it's still quite terrifying. So wh what do you do when the fear is so great and yet you're so limited? You you can only do so much. You can be the ideal parent. You could teach everything. You could make all the right rules. You could have the best communication. And still, there's still a chance that something horrendous is going to happen. You know, how... How do you kind of go on when you might be experiencing these intrusive thoughts and fears and and you're like, I've done everything I can do, I'm going to do everything I can do, and still there's th there might be a bad outcome, and, and people can get so obsessed with that that they can't, like you said, be in the moment, be centered, be here. What what do you do in that case? Yeah, I think that I think that's where the importance of developing the practice of being centered in the moment it becomes really 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 effective because that's when you can like work to stay in balance within the context of the fear itself and there's no shortage of things to be afraid of but you know we have this moment and if you can do what you can in this moment that in itself is enough to at least shift i think the enormity of some level of fear and I, I, especially, I mean, you mentioned this nowadays with, with kids and like, um, and we've never had a time where we can be on the front line of an active war in real time. It's fascinating. It's, um, who knows, maybe it's a collection of, I mean, a reflection of the general experience of a, a non-dual, the non-dual nature of a reality. Um, where fear, fear is inherent and it's, I know with fear, I think once you do those things that you can do, the, the thing, the only thing you can do after that is to kind of treat it by its opposite, which would be like love and compassion, bring yourself the love to identify, you know, I've done whatever I can for the situation and the compassion in yourself to know that even if there is still a sense of like fear there, that's okay. It's part of like the nature of our reality. It's part of, it's unfortunately the baggage that comes along with having like this, this ego concept of who I am, because this ego concept of who I am also has an understanding of its own existential experience. Yeah, yeah. That, um, <clears throat> that itself can be scary, I guess, to say the least. Yeah. I really like that, you know. I think sometimes we get so preoccupied with one emotion like fear, we forget to look around at our entire emotional landscape. And yeah, like in our emotional painting, like this painting here, 
Ethereum may be taking up 80% of the painting. However, if you look closely, there still is love, compassion. There still is joy. There's still hope. And, and to recognize that these emotions are still there and, and to give us some choice, you know, to choose to say, hey, I've done everything. And I love how you said that. The, the remaining fear is okay. Like we're, we're, we're not, the goal isn't to get rid of it or to fix it or to completely avoid it. And we, we want that fear to continue because we need that continual awareness and motivation to keep us moving when there are threats going on, you know? It becomes really challenging when like the experience of fear can be so intense for people that it trailblazes new new rounds within their, you know, their their limbic system and their amygdala. And so after that, you know, once those pathways are opened, you know, they stay open and it's easy for things to trigger those. And that's where like real intent, presence-centered work for working with uh, trauma itself is so important to like figure out how to, although you know, you know, the rubber bands has been spread that wide, yeah, and you know the capacity for how fear can be. I mean, there's other options and it's about, you know, practicing new ways of uh, standing in the experience of fear. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's in the face of fear of where we can really, really, really find that space to, it's, it's almost a, it's, it's a, it's a technique I'm sure, but it's, um, being in that space, that centeredness within the face of fear, which fear in that regard can really kind of calibrate your actions and really kind of, um, help you intend for things to be better mm-hmm. and sometimes sometimes i think it is fear itself that is kind of a requisite for uh, action i think in our modern day and age another point is that we kind of expect we're almost entitled to good outcomes you know we're not living in the olden days where the the birth mortality rate was 50% and where we had a lot of wars and battles and half of our village gets wiped out when they send the young men off to die in war. We we're kind of disconnected from, from the reality that there's not always going to be good outcomes just because we live with all this technology and a time of relative peace. We, we're kind of almost, maybe we have this false belief that, we're never going to have a bad outcome. We're never going to suffer. We're never going to end up uh, in a really shitty situation. And I think part of the fear is making us aware that that is a possibility. And I think a big block that happens for folks is that we're so afraid of the bad outcome that we don't even go there. So what if the worst case scenario happens? What if there's that horrible, horrible outcome? We're like, no, that that's the end of the world. Like, I'll just die. I'll just explode. Like, I can't go on. Well, guess what? Life is still going to go on. So I find it extremely helpful to tap into the emotions that would happen in the worst case scenario. 
I'm going to be sad. I'm going to be devastated. I'm going to be disappointed. I'm going to be hurt. I'm going to be crying. I'm going to be mourning. I'm going to be in grief. And life is also going to go on. And and realizing that, yeah, there will be a lot of painful emotions, and there should be because it's a bad outcome. And that's not something to deny and to push out of our mind completely because that keeps us further incapacitated in this all or nothing thinking where if I don't have a good outcome, then the world is over and that can get us stuck as well. Does that make sense? Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And the, and the fact, you know, there is fear there, there is pain, but there's also, you know, the fact that nothing is lasting forever. And if Mm -hmm. you can like be present in that moment, and really kind of engage and work with these experiences that are that can be overwhelming, that can be very scary or even painful. Um, in time, that'll change. And if you are applying yourself in a way that can kind of um, intend for some level of like healthy change, ideally it'll hopefully change in a way that kind of facilitates a greater health for you or the vision that you want for your world. What I find when the fear continues and I can't seem to accept it and have enough gratitude for it, and you know, I think that the mark of successfully having gratitude for our emotions is we do go back to a state of peace. Yet I find when that's not happening, I feel like the fear is still telling me that there is more to do. And one thing that seems to help quite a bit is simply asking for more help. If there's a situation, if there's a threat, if there's some bad outcome that you're fearing, then I think it drives us to community. It drives us to reaching out to our friends, our family, our neighbors, stuff that we maybe don't want to do, stuff that we typically, you know, we want to take care of our own shit. We want to be autonomous. We want to be, you know, stoic and we want to be self-sufficient, like a lot of these Western values, you know, yet that can be very unhealthy. And so with curiosity, tapping into ways to reach out for help until you really do reach that milestone, like you were saying earlier, that I've done everything I can do. I've, you know, I've, I'm have i only a human. I can only do so much. I've asked for all the help I can ask for. I've, I've done everything I can reasonably do. And there still may be a bad outcome, but at least I've exhausted my own resources. And then that's evidenced by the peace you feel, even if there still is obviously some remaining fear. Again, just realizing that's not a bad thing. That's just a real thing. That's just a life thing. And there, we don't have to make it a problem by defining it as a problem. I'm only going to be happy when there's 0% fear in my life. It's like, well, good luck, because that's not going to happen until the day you're dead, right? Yeah, absolutely. And hopefully that's further on down the track. <laughs> For sure. This is a, yeah, I, I love this, you know, these topics. Is there anything else coming to mind right now? Any emotions? Are you, where are you at right now? Just to kind of check in. Yeah, I do you know, like that experience of fear 
or whether it be fear in any like situation or I, I know that, you know, fear can, one of the ways that people try to cope with fear is in kind of like drawing inward and isolating from themselves or isolating themselves from others, which kind of goes the exact opposite of what you're referring to in regards to the importance of community and connecting with others. And that's, that's huge. Mm. And that's, um, I mean, we're social beings. I mean, we're here and all of us can, all of us can like empathize with what it is to hold some level of fear or some level of like, I don't know, catastrophe. And that's, it's, I think the inherent compassion that we can hold, which it's interesting that we're talking about fear and we're also talking about compassion and, you know, with compassion is like this idea of like love. I mean, it's, uh, you know, I think love is probably the biggest antidote to fear. And love is a verb, right? Love isn't just sort of a gooey feeling. And I think another really important key is not to forget about the other painful emotions, because oftentimes when there's great fear, there's also a great loneliness. You know, how often do we say, I'm so alone with this problem. Nobody gets it. Nobody understands. Nobody can help me. Like, this is my cross to bear alone. And so that loneliness also tunes us into that need for others. And so with love, it's one thing to say, okay, I'm just going to like tap into love. And that's great if you can do that. But actually having some action behind it, how can you actually tap into love? How can you receive help from others? How can you receive love from your friends, your family, your community, from strangers? You have to, you know, go out there and ask for it. You have to be, you have to open up yourself because love happens in relationship with our relationship with ourselves and relationship from other people. And so there's another choice there. How, how are we preventing more love from flowing into our lives by, by continuing to choose to isolate and continuing to not open ourselves up for that? Yeah. And I think you already kind of said it in a way is, you know, continuing to isolate that experience of, oh no, nobody can't, can't understand. And that's a, you know, cause regardless of who you are. There's only been one of you and <laughs> you were the only one that there is. And although I would say, you know, we're all connected. We're all essentially, I mean, in my, in my perspective, I mean, it's, again, we're all about the same thing and we're all working with this experience of fear, of sadness, of pain and of a challenge. And it can be really overwhelming and it usually is. And in fact, overwhelm is probably part of like the foundation of it. And it's, uh, yeah, it's important to be genuine, not just with your own experience, but with the experience of others and in connecting with others, genuine to the presence of the moment. So that then you can be able to kind of allow yourself to open up and connect with others and allow others to connect with you. You know, one of my favorite therapists helped me to see that overwhelm was its own emotion. At least I like to think about that conceptually because 
it was so helpful to realize that just like all emotions, overwhelm, or you can think of it as a, an emotion that's overwhelming, is not a bad thing. It's telling you like, whoa, this is too much for you right now. And, and that's great. I mean, imagine if you didn't have that and you just kept plugging away, you'd be like a frog boiling to death in water. So overwhelm is so key. And the other part about it is that it's temporary. So when you're experiencing a lot of overwhelm, keep in mind, it's, it's going to come in waves. And even though you feel overwhelmed right now, it doesn't mean you're going to be overwhelmed in 15 minutes or an hour or in five hours or tomorrow. And just pay attention with curiosity. And usually when you're overwhelmed, it's a big sign that you need to take a step back, give yourself some space, center, ground. I like journaling helps me quite a bit. Maybe you need to ask for help. Maybe you need, you know, to open yourself up more. So instead of thinking of overwhelm or any emotion as a problem, instead, if you just have that faith and belief that these emotions are trying to help you, you just got to screw your head on straight and figure out how, then you can tap into that help. Yeah, and that's a huge source of some level of like energy there. It's, yeah, it's um, tapping into it and opening up and allowing that to be there because it's it's definitely... You know, it's an exquisite and an intense experience. And, you know, the nature of fear is an exquisite and intense experience. But the nature of this whole existential unfolding is an intense and exquisite experience. And I think that's the beauty of it. That's what brings, I think, the magic to holding life. You know, just connecting with you about this today, because I had no idea, you know, what was going to come up, which is the fun thing about this podcast. I feel I feel so much less alone, you know, because you talking about fear got me, you know, tapping into my own fears. And it really started to awaken some passion and knowing that I'm not the only one that's sort of suffering with these things. And I can, you know... No, knowing that you're also having, you know, these things, it's like a universal kind of human experience, such a great reminder. And so I'm feeling, you know, I want to connect and talk with you more, maybe off air later on this week or something. But but just admitting or confessing our deep, painful, fearful emotions to each other and realizing like, hey, like, I'm not alone, like this person relates to all of a sudden that that makes us feel like, you know, not so alone in this human experience where, you know, imagine, imagine the pain of being alone with this, you know, I guess there's a lot to that complete isolation, you know, that they sometimes put people in, in prison into like solitary confinement, and how that is considered maybe one of the worst psychological tortures, right? I can only imagine how that would be. Yeah. Just, it'd be, uh, yeah. It's kind of the opposite of what drives us. And how, how are you feeling? I know you didn't know what to expect coming on this podcast with me. And what's your emotions right now? How are you feeling? What's what's happening in your in your emotional landscape? Uh, yeah, it feels, it feels very, very, very good, especially to talk about things like fear 
and worry and concern because these are things that, you know, in spite of like my profession, these are things that I always have too. Um, I always have this because I'm a human too. And it's uh, their normal human experiences is that this thing is that, and, and as you said it, it's important to be able to be with those experiences. It's important to be vulnerable, I think. I think vulnerability is one of the biggest obstacles in coping with fear because it literally is, I think, getting over that the edge there that I think is kind of what defines the experience of fear is getting over that edge and working with that edge or at the very least doing what you can to bump it out a little bit more. Even I'm reflecting on some of the things that are kind of intense in my own life, some of like my own emotional connection to these things is allowing me to be more connected with my own experience at the moment. And in doing so, uh, connect with you and uh, connect with this, I don't know, connect with my present moment where everything is. It's like the full scope. It's, you know, as much, there's as much orange there as there is purple. That's mm -hmm. the only way it can be. Yeah. Well said. As much orange as purple. I like it. <laughs> Before we wrap up, if folks wanted to follow you or get in touch, what's the best way to, to reach out? I would imagine, um, I would imagine just uh, through Permanent Health. Yeah. So Permanental Health, or you could reach out on RadicalEmotionalAcceptance.com and if you guys have any questions, topics, interests, please let us know which direction you'd like us to go. We're thinking of doing like a question and answer segment on the podcast too. Thanks so much for being on, Skip. Before we wrap up, any last uh, last thoughts? I would say, yeah, thanks, Dr. Wills, for letting me discuss this. Not just discuss fear, but um, the uh, significance of the work that we do as it relates to maybe some of the sacred medicines or as it relates to psychiatry and healing in general. It's a great opportunity. And as you can see, I'm really inspired by it. And I'm inspired mm. by uh, this existential unfolding that um, we're in the midst of right now. Yeah. Thanks for being part of PERMA. Thanks for being on. I think people can tell you're just such a, a great asset and resource and just such a valuable member of the team. So and, and even if uh, folks see one of our other medication providers or therapists, Skip's also available for all of us as sort of a, a mentor, someone to bounce ideas off of and give us help with complicated cases. So he's he's involved more than meets the eye. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I appreciate it, Dr. Wills. Thank you for having me. Cool, thanks. Hey guys, thanks for watching. This is Dr. Alex Wills with Give a F Actually. Make sure to check us out on Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts. Thanks for watching. Make sure to check out the merch store. RadicalEmotionalAcceptance.com Bye. Bye. <laughs>